0: Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast, I am your host Titus. Today I'm joined on the podcast by my returning cast of friends, Flagg Taylor and karl Scott, and we are talking about The Lives of Others, the great movie about East German late communism. Carl and Flagg have a book about the movie called Totalitarianism on Screen, which they have edited and to which they have contributed essays. Carl and Flagg and I have previously done podcasts on Whit Stillman's Comedies of Manners, but now we turn from this very light, airy conversation to a very serious subject that's also closer to some of our academic pursuits. And now, my fellow postmodern conservatives, please introduce yourselves.
1: Hi, Titus. Doing well. My name is Carl Eric Scott. And yeah, Flagg and I co-edited this volume called Totalitarianism on Screen. A number of essays on this this great movie. My work is at uh, Utah Valley University at the Center for Constitutional Studies.
2: Yeah. It is a flag here. Yes, this is a wonderful project to work on with Carl. I can't believe it's been as many years as it has been since it's come out. It doesn't seem like that long ago, but I think it's a great collection of essays, some East German dissidents in it, as well as a range of academics from different departments. So We have English professors, politics professors, and language professors, and even an interview with, I think he's still the current president of Germany, the Joachim Gauk offers his reflections on the film. So there's some interesting stuff in it. And I just remember from the moment I saw this film, I thought it was worth in-depth study. And so I was happy that the book turned out the way it did.
0: I'm also happy you guys did it. I'm happy to have a copy. Thanks, Flag. And uh, <laughs> I was most surprised, by the way, to see that Paul Cantor did an essay for the book. I did not expect to see the superstar of criticism and the Western canon in conservative academia do an essay for you guys. But I thought... Thought, wow, it's good company all around.
2: Yeah, he's great. He's great. New book on Shakespeare. Uh, that's very much worth reading. But I know Paul has a lot of interest in Germany. And so, yeah, I was glad that he seemed eager to participate in the book. So
0: let's talk a bit first about the director, Florian Henkel von Donnersmarck. As the phone suggests, he's an aristocrat. He has one uncle, for example, who is honorific abbot in hmm. an abbey because of their old aristocratic lineage. Henkel is the name of his Baron family and von Donner's mark is the place and he's got a bunch of names as aristocrats used to do so he's a very unusual guy and if you think that's not sufficiently strange he's also an immense German he's 6'8 or something like that
1: <laughs> look out uh,
0: so he, is, uh, he was born in 73, he's a fairly young guy who was only in his early 30s when he did this movie which of course went on to win the Oscar for Foreign film in 2008 and six. The Lives of Others did. And I just learned from Carl that he's doing a new movie now that's supposed to come out in November.
1: Translated into English, its book without author is scheduled to be released November 2nd. Obviously, the English release will have to wait. It features Sebastian Koch. It's sort of a repeat of the theme of Easterman communism, totalitarianism. And it also involves a author from an Easterman background who's now in West Germany, sort of dealing both with memories of totalitarian living under that state, both Nazi Germany and the GDR. And it seems to also be involved with questions of artistic fertility or lack thereof. Writer's block seems to be an interesting topic that Donner's Mark seems to go into. Maybe that's reflective of the fact that he is himself someone who gives us screenplays, sort of, (laughs) we have to wait 10 years between the two major ones, Lives of Others and this new one.
0: Yeah, that's true. Donnersmark was born in Köln in West Germany. He seems to have lived around a lot, not just in West Berlin, but also in Brussels, also in New York City, apparently. And he speaks a lot of languages, Russian among them, because after finishing high school, he decided to go to then Leningrad to study Russian, to be able to become a teacher. He's a very unusual guy, at least as far as his background goes. And so let's try to get the unusual insights in the movie he wrote and directed. Both of you have fine essays about the movie in the book, and I'd like you to talk about the movie from these perspectives. Flag, I was particularly impressed with the way you add something to what the critics noticed about the lives of others. It is the story of a Stasi agent who gradually becomes human and seems to uncover, as much as create, a moral core within himself that is independent of his indoctrination, education, and his own past, what he has chosen to do so far with his life. His contact with human beings for once makes him a human being as well. The critics have noticed that this self-creation as a moral human being is to a large extent tied up with beauty, with the experience of human creativity, but you add very astutely that disgust plays as important a role, that this man detaches himself in certain ways from his secret police communist background because he begins to dwell on his experience of it and his dissatisfaction with it. So, so talk to us about the characters involved in this triangle of disgust and this triangle of beauty.
2: Sure. Yeah, and as you said, just to be clear, I mean, maybe for those listeners who may not have seen the film at all or haven't seen it very recently, the main character is Gerd Wiesler, who we meet at the beginning of the film, who's conducting an, an interrogation. And then we see him shortly thereafter teaching what I assume to be young, prospective Stasi officers. He's giving them a lecture about interrogation. So we witness him working and doing his job and doing it quite well. The film really follows Geert Wiesler over the course of a year or so and we see him becoming dissatisfied to say the least with his work. And the other character of course that it's worth mentioning is a playwright. This is the person Wiesler is tasked with monitoring at the beginning of the film. And so the film really follows these two characters not just Wiesler but also this playwright. And so it's really a double investigation of both of these characters. And I became interested in the film for one primary reason after viewing it once or twice, and that is I think it's very hard for people who have not experienced uh, totalitarianism to appreciate the sort of effect it has on one's soul. And so anything, whether it be something in print or a film that can help people appreciate that, I'm immediately interested in. And so one of the reasons I became almost obsessed with this film is uh-huh. that it really gives people a sense of what living in an ideologically Saturated world is like, because I noticed from my other research into totalitarianism, not just in East Germany, but in other places, Soviet Union and the former Czechoslovakia, is that the thing that people remember most and remark on the most is this presence of ideology and how suffocating it is. Of course, they didn't like to live in fear and they didn't like the secret police and the violence. All these things that people know about communism are noteworthy, but the primary thing that people remember and I think found most disconcerting is the ways in which you have to make these small compromises every day, say things you don't believe, utter nonsense phrases that you know people wanna hear. And so I think the film is especially noteworthy because it really shows you what that feels like. You see these characters who are forced to behave in certain ways, and you sort of appreciate the suffocating atmosphere that I think is just very hard to grasp for people who have not felt it. So that's the first thing. I don't know if you guys, I shouldn't monologue too long if we want to talk about that. Yeah,
1: can I jump in and and say something? One thing I would just say to our listeners is that Flag and I really do feel this is a great film. And then one of the great things about it is it tackles an extremely important subject, communist totalitarianism, and really does so better than any other film we're aware of. Uh, we hope we've intrigued you already with the film, and of course we have to maybe at this point say, spoiler alert, this really is a thriller. There really are some unexpected surprises, and we're going to undoubtedly be revealing some of them. So
2: just, All surprises ruined. Right.
1: So you may want to see it yourself. It's one of these great films that for some reason, at least in America, has not probably received as much attention as it really deserves.
2: Yeah, it doesn't feel like it's trying to teach you anything, and that's yeah. why it's so successful, of course. not didactic and it's not boring, but it just provides this experience. Yeah, the thing that Titus mentioned a moment ago that, that maybe I'll just say something quickly about is that the germ of the film for Donnersmark, and he had not, I think he had only released one marginally successful short film that he had done, I think, as a film student before this. And so Donnersmark says the germ of the film is this remark that was attributed to Lenin when Lenin was listening to a beautiful piece of music. Do you have the quote, Carl? Yeah.
1: Yeah, he says, the original idea came from this quote by Lenin, who said he didn't want to listen to a certain type of music anymore. And, and the specific piece was the Appassionata Sonata by uh, Beethoven, because it made him feel so soft inside that he couldn't commit all the atrocities he felt he had to, to finish the revolution. And so this is Donner's Mark. So my film took that literally and tried to find a way of forcing Lenin to listen to that music, to sort of kind of just turn it around.
2: Right. And so this is the awakening that Titus mentioned, that so Donner's Mark has Wiesler undergo this moral awakening that has to do with an appreciation for the love that he witnesses between these two people that he's tasked with
0: monitoring. The playwright, Georg Dreimann and his actress, Christa Maria
2: Zeeland. But he's also, of course, awakened by a beautiful piece of music that is played in the film. And so in my essay, I talk about what I call the axis of longing, which is one thing that pulls Wiesler out of his ideological stupor, his willingness to participate in this evil enterprise. He grows to appreciate love and beauty in a way that he just had never appreciated before. And so that part of the film is well known. But what I tried to get people to see in my essay is that that's not the only kind of foundation of wiesler's transformation there is what i call the axis of disgust this is wiesler becoming more and more aware that the people who are the engines of the state in the film, he comes to appreciate that they don't really believe what they're doing anymore, that the people who are supposedly committed to the wonders of communism, it turns out, are utter cynics and really aren't interested in communism. They don't really believe in the goals of communism. They don't have any pretensions to realizing the wonders of communism, that the people both above and below him are basically all out for themselves. Coming to that realization is as much a motivator for Wiesler as anything. Last thing I'll say very quickly is that I think this is very important because it gives people appreciation for what the communism of the 70s and 80s was like, right? This is no longer a communism where you have real enthusiasm, bloodthirsty violence and show trials, all the things that defined the Soviet Union in its early days and then the Warsaw Pact countries in the 50s. By the 70s and 80s, all that is gone. Yet you have the system that continues to operate almost on autopilot. And so to me, it's just worth thinking about this because it always struck me as one of the more bizarre things in human history that you could have this awful system that grinds people both materially and spiritually, but that it's a system that no one believes in anymore. That something that is so awful and sort of admittedly awful by the people who are at the center of it can continue despite the fact that there's no sincere belief. And so, part of my own research and writing has been dedicated to really coming to terms with how that is possible. How how can this thing continue on autopilot when people don't believe in it anymore? Uh, and so, how everyone perpetuates these lies and lives with themselves as they perpetuate these lies that is something that I think the movie does a wonderful job of getting across. So, in me. your
0: essay, you bring in Václav Havel and uh, the example he gives in The Power of the Powerless, of the shopkeeper, who, though he has no no interest in the ideology, the fighting faith of communism, or the worldwide struggle, none of that. Nevertheless, workers of the world unite the old communist struggle slogan from Marx's communist manifesto, it's still there in his window. Maybe he doesn't give a damn about Marx, but he feels he has no choice about this, and so he always puts it up there for everybody to see, and for himself to know that the reflex is in him, to put the sign in the window, every day to affirm in this small way that we live by lies. Mm -hmm. and it's remarkable how well Donnersmar has portrayed this in the movie. You see the importance of these lies in your essay They also make much of this great scene in a communist cafeteria. Protagonist Gerd Wiesler is there sitting with one of his colleagues not a friend, but someone he knows personally. A colleague in the Stasi who is cynical as you said, ambitious whose sense of how the system works is geared to how it will help him advance what mm-hmm, he knows mm-hmm. is what is useful for him to advance what kinds of job he's he should be doing well for whom to get rewards for himself regardless of the effects on anybody else and he's uncomfortable with eating in the cafeteria where they are because he'd rather be with more important people that guides Perfect. him in life yeah. you're with important people you know what you want to get out of that you know how you should conduct yourself yes yeah. whereas Gisler remarks sarcastically to him well, you know, socialism has to start somewhere. We, we can't keep chasing privileges and looking down on other of our fellow police state employees. Yeah. And uh, there you see how his acquaintance, Grubitz, thinks about his own advancement and his relationship to his superiors, but also how he relates to his inferiors. One of them fails to keep up the empty lie by making a joke about how even the sun wants to escape the rule of Honecker, the rule of the communist party in his Germany, and as the sun mounts its way from east to west on the canopy, well, the sun is now free, isn't it? Doesn't need to show any more respect to Honecker. That silly joke in a cafeteria gives Grubitz a chance to exercise his cruelty cruelty to terrorize this young foolish guy who opens his mouth without realizing that's not how you live in this place. You don't open your mouth to say what goes on in your head. You only open your mouth to say what is expected of you after you have seen the circumstances. And this empty cruelty shows a certain reflex that Wiesler's acquaintance or friend has acquired. He knows that you should be servile to your superiors and cruel to your inferiors. That is the hierarchy of contempt and fear. Right. We see how Grubitz himself learns to change his opinions and to be servile to his superiors in order to please them, although he has no respect or admiration for them. And we also see how he treats his inferiors with what kind of contempt he disposes of people, simply because they're not really people. They don't endanger yeah, him, so they're not real.
2: Yeah, and so it really bothers Wiesler, to say the least, that people like Grubitz and, of course, cultural minister Bruno Hemph, who is using his position and who designs this monitoring operation only because he wants to be able to have his way sexually with Krista Maria Zeeland, the actress and girlfriend of uh, Georg Dreiman, the famous director. The last thing I will say is that it's, of course, important to appreciate the transformation of Dreiman. Dryman is not, and I think this gets lost by a lot of people who see the film, that that Dryman, in a way, is thoroughly implicated in the system. He's certainly in no way, we know that he's not an informant, he doesn't work for the secret police, but I think the very clear suggestion by Donner's Mark is that Dryman is an award-winning poet in the GDR, which means he could not have become the prominent cultural figure he is had he not been willing to compromise himself in all sorts of invisible. Visible ways. He has to undergo his own act of disgust in order for the film to have the engine it needs dramatically. And so we need to appreciate, I think, Georg Dreiman's transformation and the ways in which he has been analogous to the shopkeeper that you mentioned, Titus, and Hobble's example who puts the Workers of the World Unite sign in his window. Dreiman must have done all sorts of individual actions to keep himself in good odor with the regime. Mm-hmm. So he's in many ways, not a terribly admirable figure at the beginning of the film. Indeed, no.
1: And
0: his activity as a playwright does support the regime in various ways. He's certainly not subversive. That is also the party line about playwright Georg Dreimann. He is not subversive. That makes him acceptable. What makes him useful, however, is that he is read in the West. He can Mm -hmm. discredit, that is to say, subversive writers by implication
2: well and the state the other thing of course is that the GDR and other communist countries like it we're happy to have people like Dryman because they can show these cultural figures off to say see we're a culturally elite country see we produce works of great literature and see we even allow people a measure of freedom that you in the West say we don't these people in a way are the GDR's own useful idiots
0: mm-hmm. Yep, they
2: are the garland
0: on the chains that the regime puts on people yeah. they buy a certain kind of sheen a certain kind of prestige and they not only distract from the deep moral political question of enslaving a nation but they also carry on a kind of political polemical competition worldwide that look the communist countries can produce these things look what great human achievements come out of communist regimes this is the purpose that say gary kasparov serve and the chess program for the soviet union They were used, so to speak, like pawns to show off great genius was available and flourishing in Soviet communism. And that served as a kind of competition between capitalism and communism. What kind of human beings does each system produce? and Georg Dreimann is involved in this. He likes to think of himself as involved privately, which he suggests is an innocent pastime. He toots his friendship a couple of times with the wife of the tyrant, Konecker, in East Germany. He has books from her. Yeah. That is, that is it... kind of personal favor is supposed to show that he's better than everybody else, he's safe, that he has somehow a private relationship with the powerful. But at the same time, it's not a tyrant, It's his wife. That's perfectly alright. That doesn't stain you morally and politically. And at the same time, at the other end, with the weak, he has a disgusting relationship. He avoids his friends who have been proscribed. But then again, what can he do? To do other than he does would be to take a moral political stance against the regime that would destroy him. And that seems to be the price of being public. Had he been a merely private person, it wouldn't be such an affront to the regime to have him carry on his friendship with proscribed writers.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. We should say, too, just in terms of not only communicating to our listeners the profundity and intellectual heft of the film, none of this should suggest that the film isn't exciting and interesting to watch and gripping. And one of the reasons that it is so, and this is all the all the more remarkable, given that this was Donnersmark's first feature film, is that the film does include... And all the roles in the film are inhabited by A-list German actors. Yeah. Uh, it would be like a young screenwriter in the United States shopping around a screenplay and attracting Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, you know, all the A-listers you can think of. And so to me, that tells you something about the nature of the screenplay, that it was able to attract all these people and make people so interested in working with Donner's Mark. It's really pretty remarkable yeah i completely agree the moral intensity of the story
0: is almost entirely translated into drama into Mm -hmm. events that you're caught in even though you do not know where they lead and i think that's what makes the movie work as a story so well when once you see where things end or how they turn in each specific relationship as well as the major plot lines it makes sense But it was unpredictable getting there. And there is Mm -hmm. something fearful about the discovery. This is a movie about whether knowledge is innocent. Your knowledge of other people's secret lives. And your knowledge of your friends and what they're going through. Georg Dreimann, the playwright, learns things that make it impossible for him to continue as he had. And that shows how knowledge becomes personal, how it is tied up with your flesh and bones. This playwright who decides to become a certain kind of political activist, he, he already knew things that should have caused any decent man to change, but he did not want that knowledge to change him. You can see how painful learning things really is when those things are about the deep facts of human nature as you experience them, as people in your life experience them. The shocking betrayals and the wiretapping and so forth these stories. Just to say this briefly, these are stories I grew up with. Now all kids grow up with certain morally compromising knowledge you hear about the neighbor or one of your friend about their parents maybe there's misery in their lives maybe there's betrayal you see human ugliness and that knowledge changes you somehow as a child you grow up maybe too soon well when i was a kid i knew kids whose parents betrayals and shocking revelations were involved in the state police people who had been betraying people to the communist authorities and i saw that guy i shook hands with him i know that woman i was in her house yeah. they don't look special right they didn't involve themselves in some world changing or politically important event, they were just part of what this system
2: was like and their actions changed the rest of their lives. Yeah, that's good, because I think the film also gives you an appreciation, especially those of us in the West who don't have the family and friends connections that you would because of your country's past, to appreciate how easy it would have been to accommodate yourself to the system. And of course, conversely, how difficult and utterly courageous you would have had to been to have dissented even in the most minor way. You have that wonderful scene with uh, Gerard Dreiman's neighbor from across the hall Frau Meineke. Wiesler knocks on the door after he's searched Dreiman's flat, opens the door and just says very quickly, Frau Meineke, not a word of this to anyone or your daughter's education at university will come to an end in a matter of minutes. Everyone has something to lose and most people are not willing to damage the health and well-being of their loved ones for some cause that seems quite abstract, right? I mean, it just seems crazy that one could perform an action that would bring down communism, right? All of this seems so distant and abstract that I think the calculation is that one would be silly, to do anything that would damage the well-being of your family, given that these the supposed political and moral good that you would be seeking is so distant and uncertain. And so I think it really gives the audience, especially a Western audience, an appreciation for just how easy it would have been, again, to find a way to exist within the system and not right. rock the boat.
1: Right. The unremarkable person's various easy ways of not rocking the boat. But as a way of kind of getting into the essay I wrote, I'd like to maybe provide a partial defense of the playwright, Georg Dreiman, that we've been talking about, because he had a complicated way in which he had to work with the system. And what's complicated about it is that his moral and artistic excellence was allowed by the regime to flourish at a certain level or in a certain space. In his plays, in his private life, we see the party that he throws in his apartment, we see the wonderful artworks that he keeps in his apartment. He's allowed a slice of life that is beautiful and to a degree truth-seeking, and he's allowed to present these plays. Now, these plays are noted for being not critical of the regime, so they're appreciated by the East German authorities. But I think we're led by various clues in the film to see that there's something more powerful in those plays, that there really is some real artistry there. There's some openings to some truths that are outside of the purview of official socialist thought. And so Dreiman, and this is one of the only things that's really left in East German life, where people can maybe get a glimpse of this world of integrity, of beauty. And so Dreiman is protecting an important role, you might say, and that's partly what's involved in his self-corrupting going along with the whole situation and not criticizing the regime directly. So I think that has to be said. And one of the things I argued in my essay in addition is that it's likely that Dreiman has a view about how communism ought to be able to reform itself in East Germany is a view that is sometimes called by scholars reform communism. It's associated with some of the leaders of the Prague Spring uh, movement in Czechoslovakia in 1968, 67. And this sort of idea that the heart of socialism is humane, is nice. It's just from a 1960s or 1980s East European perspective, it's just gotten kind of corrupted and out of hand in the hands of people like Stalin or what have you. But there's a way of reforming it so that its good side comes out. I think you can consider. That, that's what Dryman really believes. So he's got this kind of gradualist creed whereby he will gradually nudge the best communist leaders to allow for more freedom. And, you know, it's important that eventually this sort of actually happened. I mean, Gorbachev was someone who was convinced by this reform communist thinking that you could have a communism that allowed more artistic freedom, blunt journalistic explanation of societal problems with perestroika, etc. Of course, I. I think from a scholarly point of view, these people were wrong. (laughs) Communism could not survive even an incremental opening of the reform door. But that's, I think, necessary for understanding Dryman. I'll, I'll say more, but maybe just see what your guys' reactions to that idea is.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really important aspect to Dryman's character. And as you suggest, it's not at all unintelligible or crazy It makes a certain amount of sense. The idea is that full resistance to the system is hopeless.
1: Yeah, it's irresponsible.
2: Yeah, it will only result in violence. It's morally self-indulgent. And so if I can remain in good odor with the regime, I'm a relatively decent person. So through my personal skills and my interactions with people in high places, I can make the system however detestable it is now, I can inject a little decency into it. Now, I think ultimately that turns out to be naive and incorrect, but it's important for the audiences to appreciate that it's it's not at all crazy. One can appreciate how it would have made a lot of sense to a lot of people working at various levels of society, right? Yeah. Even communist regimes have artists. Um, yes. After a
0: communist regime goes through de-Stalinization, that is to say, when the ruling oligarchy that tyrannizes the country no longer has a tyrant of its own on top, ideological violence to a large extent decreases. There are far fewer purges, if any, there is far less murdering going on, but the terror is still there. The regime still is tyrannic essentially, but is no longer openly violent and it is no longer unpredictably violent, so to speak. People get used to it. And then life in certain ways has to go on. Art is no longer socialist art, is no longer socialist realism, is no longer some kind of communist ideology because nobody believes it. But there still are all the aesthetic pursuits, so to speak, all the poetic pursuits. They have limits, but they exist and they speak to true human needs, both in the audience of plays or movies or what have you, and in the makers, the poets themselves. Communism no longer seeks to entirely censor or to exterminate these kinds of human beings or these kinds of activities, and so they have to find a place for themselves. Everyone who knows a bit about the poets who flourished in these regimes can see how great talent did manage to survive, sometimes to make it through communism and to improve lives in real ways for people, to give an oasis of humanity for those who by luck or by prudence were not trapped in some catastrophic. Event. And uh, more broadly, these artists are often fairly important for giving people a sense of their dignity, that there is something Mm -hmm. left to them. It cannot be exactly a political dignity. Its only political aspect is that, in as much as it is a form of dignity, it stands quietly but strongly against the regime of fear and obedience. Nobody feels good about being obedient and complicit in his own humiliation, in his own fear. Everybody was looking for some kind of alternative to that, and most people don't want political revolution. And here you see the power and the fragility of poetry. It does speak to each soul, it does speak to a nation, but it does not have any power over the bodies, so to speak.
2: That speaks too to again and go back to the idea that this makes dryman all the more detestable in a way. Titus, you can see from what you were describing how intoxicating this idea would be for a successful poet, artist that now they're more important in a way than the regime because they don't believe the nonsense that the regime is spouting. They're above that. And they're also above the crazy nonsense that these self-hating dissidents are spouting. It's attractive because it's this I'm above it all I'm the only one that can navigate this world and lead people out of this morass. But ultimately, I think it's a vast system of excuse making for blinding yourself to what's going on. And that's what, in the end, I think, Dryman comes to realize about himself. Yeah put himself above both sides.
1: Right, he tried to follow this track of being in the model of Boris Pasternak, just celebrating art and life and creating this apolitical refuge of artistic achievement and beauty. There was something to that, and there was some similarity in that approach and something done by some of the Czech artists, but he sort of wanted to have it both ways. He wanted to do that and also have the regime still give him his opportunities to do plays. I mean, there's a lot of meditation in the film. The different types of artistries and how they're differently dependent upon a broader group of people working. A director, for example, is much more vulnerable. He needs there to be this whole milieu of scripts and plays and he has to work within that. He depends on other people, an actor also. The writer is potentially more free. He can maybe just write for his own drawer or his own group of secret friends. But notice that Dryman is a playwright. He wants to be involved in this public production of plays. And so he is sort of tempted into this dangerous place. And ultimately, it's corrupting him. He says one of the key quotes of the film, he confronts his girlfriend, Krista Maria, saying, you know, I know that you're sleeping with this cultural minister, you don't." me to do that and she says to him i don't actually aren't we all really in bed with them you're in bed with them and dryman has no he accepts that criticism he says i want to try to do something right but he hasn't and it's this is this type of very subtle moral corruption of a humanitarian artist that donner's mark is able to portray and what's most powerful about it is that part of what donner's mark has shown us in the film is the truly redemptive power of art I argue in my essay that the Stasi captain Wiesler is in a sense rescued by uh, witnessing the artistic life, the erotic life, the friendship life of Dryman. That's what Flagg calls the axis of longing. But the problem is that Dryman also is need, in need of rescue, and it turns out it's a reciprocal rescue. The change in the Captain uh, Wiesler is necessary in a way to prod Dryman out of his comfort zone. A couple actions that Wiesler takes in the film that cause this, he does this thing with the buzzer, this causes Dryman to see, oh, my girlfriend is getting out of Minister Hemp's car. So how long would it have taken him to realize that had not Fiesler intervened in this way? There's this strange way in which Donner's Mark is holding up the power of art to fight against totalitarian oppression in the tradition of someone like Solzhenitsyn saying lies can overcome much but not art, or one word of truth will overthrow a system like that. But Donner's Mark is also showing us the way in which artists are very morally vulnerable to the corruptions of a communist regime. Now, my essay also talks about some other types of corruption, but I'll just leave that out there for Flag and Titus.
0: You are both right here, Flagg is right that there's something dizzying about thinking that you're above it all and at the same time maybe everything does hinge on what you do that you hold out the only hope there is for people outside of this political conformity that debases everyone. But it's not exactly real. There's something to it, but there's just not enough reality to it. Like you point out, a man in such a position actually does depend, even in this story, on the actions of somebody within the system. He depends on some lenience, and so the playwright is confronted with his girlfriend. She is his first audience, and she is his truest believer. She not only stars in his plays, she glows while doing so it has made Mm. her a great actress but it also makes her proud of herself it's not just that she wants to act it's that she wants to act in certain kinds of plays, she wants to believe like his plays teach people that there's change, that change can happen to people, now mind you, neither he nor his girlfriend are looking for change themselves but they are empowered in a certain way by being able to change other people by offering change to other people and then change comes to them and it turns out to be morally damning or threatening at least you see how people can be threatened precisely because of their good intentions and because of their spirited even noble attempts to do well by others both the right right and the actors justify themselves because they do make a public difference in people's lives It's one thing for the communist regime to use them and their art to get prestige, but it would be completely another for the regime to create that. The regime cannot. The prestige is built on a real art that depends on a receptive and in a certain way educated and judging audience. The people themselves have to believe that this is worthwhile, that this is true to human dignity in a way the regime itself is not. Both the actress and the writer-director are part of that. They really do supply people with a real sense of dignity that is, in crucial ways, apolitical, and it turns out that's both empowering and incredibly dangerous. Yeah, I think that
2: point connects to something I've been thinking about lately. I've been working on ideology and how it works on human beings as moral persons. And I think one thing that this film and communism um, in general can teach you, it goes all the way back to Aristotle, which is that uh, in terms of behaving in a moral way, knowing what the moral course of action is, is often pretty easy. Even in corrupt times and places, most people know what the moral thing is to do. But doing it is a whole nother ball of wax i think we don't appreciate that enough that in some sense there's a moment in the film where all of these characters it's pretty clear know what they should do But for various reasons that we could talk about, they can't bring themselves to do it. That's a powerful human truth. These ideological regimes kind of bring out and remind us. Yeah. I didn't want to bring us back to Aristotle's ethics, but Uh, that's, you know, that's (laughs) That's necessary. (laughs) Yeah. And it's
0: a very big deal in the movie itself. Aristotle teaches us that it's one thing to be a good man and another thing to be a good citizen. And you see what it takes in uh, East Berlin, in communist East Germany, to be a good citizen. And it is morally horrifying. And on the other hand, to be a good man, it would be suicidal. And this is a big question for art in the movie. Dreimann, the playwright's friend who commits suicide, sends him a piece of music called Sonata for a Good Man. It seems like a work of anticipation, like Beethoven's work is somehow supposed to call forth democratic heroism, this sonata is supposed to look forward to a time when it is possible to be a good man in this Germany, but the man who writes the music kills himself because he thinks it is not possible now, and he can no longer bear the weight, and of course Dreimann himself ends up writing a book called Sonata for a Good Man. It seems, because it is dedicated to the Stasi agent who he learns helped him at great personal risk, it seems to be a work born in disappointment and tragedy that's supposed to teach people to live with it. Even if it's not possible now to be a good man, it's possible to know what a good man is. And that can orient you somewhat. Mm-hmm. And we see that yeah, this, both the men who survived the catastrophe in some ways have been oriented by their awareness of an existential moment. And maybe in the tyranny you do need an existential moment of change. You cannot rely on good habits to be a good citizen and that to teach you something important about what it is to be a good man. To be a good man is to face the personal abyss, the possibility that you will be destroyed by the regime, by the institutions. And nevertheless, surviving a catastrophe might teach you that you could live by that insight, that that fundamental truth could help you deal even with this horrifying situation where what is dearest to you is most endangered and indeed stolen from you.
2: We should say, too, for our listeners that you brought up the the sonata, that the music in the film is absolutely beautiful and amazing. And I think I'm certainly no expert on soundtracks and how they relate to a screenplay and how they help move the film along. But I would be surprised if most experts in that area didn't acknowledge that the music and the role played by music in the film is actually pretty crucial to the audience's enjoyment of it. It's really a beautiful soundtrack.
1: Yeah, listeners can keep track of certain themes. And one of the more interesting ones that repeats is the love theme between Krista Maria and Dryman. And the most beautiful part of the film is we hear it at the very end when this kind of lonely, uh, sad, ex-Astasi man, Beesler, picks up the novel that Georg Dryman has written, and there's a dedication. So the love theme comes to a distant friendship between him and Dryman, And that's particularly beautiful because it shows us that Biesler has moved on from being someone ruled by ideology and concerned with the lives of others to now having his own life, his own reactions to art, his own, you might say, distant friendship with Dryman.
0: Yeah, what you see in Vizsler is that he begins to have an inside, yes. right? and he begins to act in unpredictable ways, and he begins to have secrets, and mm. this is essentially tied up with being human, and the resistance anyone at any point has to oppose to any society around him in order to have an inside. A place of one's own that is naturally secret, that is to say, that it cannot be exposed. And unfortunately, in a tyrannic regime, to try to do this to realize that you are a human being, that there is something inside of you that cannot be exposed or taken from you, can get you killed. Yeah,
1: and I think maybe the uniquely frightening thing about the GDR is that they seem to have perfected a level of surveillance. Their stated motto was to know everything. And there is a way in which you see they are able to gather up this reductive knowledge about every personality type and every motive There's this horrifying scene where Grubitz recounts this dissertation on Stasi interrogation techniques and they say there's only five types of artists and Dreiman is a type four and This is what you do to a type four and you you put him in solitary confinement and don't explain anything. And guess what? Afterwards, he won't do any dissidence and he won't write anything. And so there's this horrible sense in which the GDR explored the possibility of getting complete information in a reductive sense about everyone's inner lives, everyone's secrets, and then pulling those levers to keep a certain class in power. It's it's worth thinking about in the light of what could be done with the types of information we all reveal about ourselves. our internet social media activities. It would be a very different totalitarian regime, but that kind of knowledge can be exploited in a way that's truly terrifying.
2: Yeah, I think Peter Greider, who's the British historian in our book, his essay is in part meditation on the sorts of things you were just talking about, Carl, and the sort of dangers of wandering into a a soft totalitarianism where we're willing to give the state all this information, but really not thinking twice about it because it doesn't seem that threatening. So I definitely recommend Greider's essay He's a British historian, as I said, and has a fairly recent book on the GDR, a general history of the GDR, which is quite good.
0: That's good to know. And it is indeed remarkable to what extent what you learn in this movie is tied up with how you feel about it, that you can understand these people and live in a strange and fearful closeness to them. You can see why this is happening and how it moves along. And at the same time, that means that you can learn certain things that apply to our world now. We have, of course, freedoms that are unimaginable in a setting like the GDR, but a certain fear for your soul, so to speak, for how you're in innermost might be violated, exposed, or how power might be wielded to break you with your own consent that is a going concern mm-hmm. it seems like the emotional core of the movie is so important and it made for such a success as it did because it this is not something that goes away right it, it can serve as an introduction for people who live in a very different place than is germany to gradually right. work their way to what it would mean to see also a political equivalent of this personal fear of being exposed and in being exposed being controlled so that you can no longer do anything And up yeah. consenting to your own destruction i think that's a good way to get to the character we have spoken about least the actress and girlfriend Christa maria zealand and i think the first thing to say about that is what a name as uh, <laughs> i could talk a bit about the names like this woman is called crista maria now this cannot be an
2: accident
1: <laughs> Yeah, Christ Mary. One of our contributors, I think it was Lauren Weiner, also pointed out that the name Christa is particularly resonant in an East German situation because there's a famous writer who's called the loyal dissident Christa Wolf, who was sort of later found to have cooperated more with the Stasi than people had thought. So there's, in addition to the obvious Christian resonances, there's that one.
0: Yeah, that works with the plot disturbingly well. Yes. Her story, as the two men find some kind of redemption, in her case, it's a catastrophe that doesn't seem to be mitigated by much of anything. In a sense, that's what brings the men closest together. They are there, if apart, when the woman dies. What humiliation and self-hatred a tyranny can instill into someone's soul, she fully suffers. I guess this is the Christian reference in the plot that Christ is Christ because he suffered everything that is possible for human beings to suffer and which no human being actually is capable of suffering but in this story, she suffers for both of these men's virtues and for their vices, not just for her own, that is to
1: say. Right. So this is probably our biggest spoiler. Krista Maria dies at the end. It's arguably a suicide. But even maybe more importantly, she betrays her lover, Dryman. She's under Stasi interrogation, and she tells that he's the one who's written this article on suicides, which is his big moment of moral self-redemption. He finally does something against the, the GDR. Well, for her, it's... disaster because she sort of gets inklings that he's the one that does it and the stasi is able to use that and she even reveals or she thinks she's revealing as it turns out the location of really damning evidence that he's the one that wrote this article in the audio commentary to the dvd which i highly recommend Donner's Mark says at one point, Well, that the moment she kind of betrays Dryman, it's almost as if she dies right there. That there's something so fundamental to our souls in a betrayal of a loved one like that. And for her sake, there's nothing, it's it's a truly terrible moment. And in her case, this kind of moral corruption is not the subtle sort of Dryman's. It's straight up, I want to continue my life as an actress and I will betray my loved one for the sake of doing that. So it's a very traditional kind of moral corruption that the Stasi corners are into. And I think one of the things that's so powerful about this film and so important about it is it shows us that this type of moral corruption was fostered by the KGB, the Stasi. For reasons that Flagg explains in his essay, these regimes needed to maintain this ideological lie. All sorts of things that were obviously false had to, by communist logic, be affirmed. And The way they would do that is they would pit people against one another. They'd say, well, you have to affirm this lie. Otherwise, we won't let your daughter go to university or we'll harm this other person. And so everyone winds up just about complicit in the regime's lies. And to me, the most moving scene, perhaps, in the film is where you see Dreiman is investigating the Stasi files that have been collected on him. This is after the wall has fallen, of course, in the, um, now a museum, in a sense, it's the old Stasi headquarters. And you just see row upon row of these files. And I think the film is visually suggesting, take this horrible story of what happens to Krista Maria, cornered into doing the worst thing she's ever done in her life, betraying her lover. Multiply that by hundreds of thousands, by millions. That's what has been called the moral destruction unleashed by communism. I'm getting that from Elaine Besson's son, who wrote this book called A Century of Horrors. And he's very good at bringing out the fact that it's not just the number of deaths or the gulag sentences that we should focus upon. I mean, we should. It's significant that there's 100 million deaths attributable to communism, but it's also all these other hundreds of millions of stories of, of individual self-betrayal slash moral corruption. And we're given one little story of that. It's the special one in certain ways in the lives of others.
2: And this is why communism, I think, has left such a difficult legacy for some of these countries to overcome. I mean, I think there's some remark of Solzhenitsyn somewhere that I think he says it will take three or four generations to recover from kind of the moral rot. I've seen some of the files, the secret police files, the STB in Czechoslovakia, and interviewed people who've looked at their files, or even some people have not looked at them because they didn't want to know, because many people have looked at the files, and, and I'm not making this up, and discovered that their spouses had been informing on them, or their best friend, or their priest that's just too much for some people to take. And so lots of people in the former Czechoslovakia, even though I think the laws there, I think are the most liberal laws that you can go and see almost anyone file. Without their permission in some cases, many people have just declined to go for fear of what they would discover. So I think you're right, Carl, that is a particularly powerful scene to see him at that desk with that giant stack of manila folders beside him and people delivering files. It's a remarkable thing. Yeah, as I said, I grew up with this. I never gave it this kind of moral
0: intensity, but it makes me very grateful that the guy made this movie and that it won Oscars and other awards so that it has a kind of prestige to give it a second life because it's very important. In an ironic way, the playwright and the actors do end up standing for the whole of his Germany and for human dignity. Not in the way they had planned, of course, but you do see what the moral core of drama is. It's because it's about real people's lives, ultimately. Yeah. It it shows you the greatness and the misery of being human, and it might not be in the way a director or an actress would like it to happen, but it is going to happen. (laughs) Yes, very well put. Startling, but at the same time gripping. You cannot look away from this, and you do not want to look away. It's it's a great movie to watch a second time or a third time in. I'm very happy to have had the chance to talk with you about this as well, of course, as to read the book. My wife is a bit younger than me and she knows even less than I do about the communist days in Romania. I was a baby when the regime fell here and I showed her this movie and it made a, a deep impression on her and I was startled to see that She was eager to see it a second time and happy to learn more about this. It's, it's somewhat strange because it's so ugly. I know all of my life what it means for people to want to look the other way and to bury the past i'm not sure if i'm even against people who hold that opinion but to see that you can make this morally compelling and give people this experience that comes with a certain judgment that human dignity can survive this is not a mutilating experience it is in a certain small way maybe ennobling that's the great thing what I'm left with from this movie and why I wanted to record such a conversation. Thanks a lot guys, this has been great and a chance to listen to you not just to read the
1: essays which I recommend to everyone I'm very grateful. Well thanks for having me Yeah, thank you Titus and we just again encourage all our listeners to experience this really truly great work of art for themselves Well, we have come to the conclusion of our recording
0: here. I hope everyone will be inspired and I hope people will see the movie or see it again, read the book. It's something to show for what we've been through. So thanks very much.
1: Okay, Okay. see you later.
0: Ah, Adios.